Boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom. Welcome to the Good Energy Project with Lou Connor, a surprisingly hopeful and upbeat show about economics, climate change, and our future on planet Earth. Kia ora, welcome to the Good Energy Project. Today I'm going to be talking to Tur Boren, the chairman of the Quattro Trust, which is actually my employer. It was Tur's passion to do something to respond to the climate crisis that has kicked this whole project off. And I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to embark on this mission to understand our economic system and how it impacts the environment. So Tur is originally from Holland. He came to New Zealand with his large family of eight, eight children and two parents, when he was 13, and settled in Upper Hutt, uh, where my father's actually from. And we recently discovered that my grandfather was his metalwork teacher. And his daughter is my good friend Mitzi, so we're connected in lots of ways. Tur says it was his interest in sport that helped him to be accepted when he got to New Zealand. And he went on to play hockey for New Zealand and was in the gold medal winning team at the Montreal Olympics in 1976. This is relevant because um, he's very keen on team sports and this will come up later, I think. Tur has had a very successful career in business. It started when he did his apprenticeship as an analyst for the Development Finance Corporation. The DFC, as it was known, was a bit like a government-run bank. It invested in New Zealand companies and supported them to succeed. Tur developed a talent for working with so-called problem accounts, companies that were struggling and would probably fail if they didn't get help. Tur worked with them to get them back on their feet, and he eventually set up his own company doing similar work helping struggling companies to succeed. According to Tur, it was around five years ago that he met Professor Susan Crumdike, my second interview guest. The meeting induced a, a kind of eureka moment, I think, that woke Tur up to the urgency of the climate crisis. He heard an interview with Susan on the radio, I think, and was so struck that he picked up the phone and called her. He organised for Quattro Trust to subsidise the cost of publishing her textbook, Transition Engineering. And since then, Tur has dedicated his time to this cause, in particular looking at the relationship between economics and the environment. So I'm very excited to hear Tur's thoughts on what the role of the business community is in, in making the changes that we need to make. Um, but before I bring Tur in, I'd just like to share a little bit about what I've been learning and thinking in my journey so far. This is my fourth interview, I think, yeah. And um, from my first two interviews with my brother Justin and Susan, I started to get a sense of what a new economic system could feel like. With Justin, we explored his visions for the food systems and imagined local networks of people exchanging food and nurturing local relationships and all this goodwill kind of being exchanged while sort of looking after the planet. 
Justin's descriptions resonated with what I've begun to learn about Māori economies. This has mainly been through my conversations with a wonderful man called David Tikau, who's the investment manager for Naitahu, the South Island iwi or tribe. David described how in traditional Māori society, economic exchanges were embedded in everyday life. They weren't just practical, they established mana and friendship and built trust and alliances, and they were also spiritual. And this seems so different to how we operate today. And um, I think when I asked Susan how she thought we needed to change the economic system to survive the climate crisis, she suggested we forget about the old structures and just start building new ones. And so I, I guess um, from Justin and Susan, I got the sense of like something, new structures that we're creating. And then in my conversation with Barry Coates last time, I learned about um, ethical investment and how we can actually use our, use our awareness of what we're doing with our money um, to give more power to companies that are trying to do good things and try and direct our power away from things like fossil fuels. So I guess in that conversation I started to think about what could the contribution of businesses be and I think of a business as an old structure but Tur has spent his life working in business and so I'm really interested in, in looking into um, do we need to change the way business is done or, or what is the sort of gift or gold that business, the mindset of business can bring to help us make the changes we need to make? Uh, so um, welcome to... Hi Lou, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, well, thank you for having me do this job. As you probably know, I like to start right at the beginning and ask you a little bit about your childhood. So my first question is, do you remember when you were a little boy, what absorbed your energy and what fascinated you? Um, well, family, of course, because and surviving in a large family. But um, my father was a keen golfer and at four I was allowed for the first time to caddy for him, which was a great thrill. And um, yeah, sport has been a, a, a big interest in my life. So you grew up in a family of eight kids, was it? Correct. And so, like, I imagine that there's quite a lot of competition and sort of jostling um, from the beginning, was there? I suppose so. Yeah, boys were favourite in my family. And mm. um, my father was uh, an old European. He, he, he thought my mother could become the chess champion of the world because that... Uh, her competition was fundamentally inferior in intellect and oh. so on. So he, he said his own upbringing had been much tougher than the one that he gave us. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. And so I wondered if you remembered the first, when you first came across money and what impression that made on you. What happens, again, talking about my father, is that uh, he, he decided with each of his first three children that he should support them in an area of interest that he thought suited their personality. So with my oldest sister, Annika, he, he and she went to pottery classes and, and she's dedicated her life to, to being an artist and, mm. and being a potter. And with... Uh, Jan, who had a big influence on me, 
he was great at sports from an early age and so my father encouraged him to play as much sport as possible and mm. I looked up to Jan a lot. He decided that I was more of a sort of a commercial type, I think. <laughs> yes. And so from the age of about sort of eight, he took me to the factory floor of businesses that he was associated with and introduced me to the factory manager and, and the staff that were working there, which I found quite embarrassing. And, <laughs> Did you? And, yeah, so, so going to the factory floor sort of came natural to me. And then we started... Um, together a family newspaper okay. uh, called the Boron Paper. And, yeah. um, and, uh, Was this your dad, your dad encouraged you to start this business? Yeah, and so I had to put in half my pocket money to, because businesses need capital. And, okay. Yeah, and, and actually uh, we, we sold subscriptions to our extended family. I think at one stage we, we had a subscription list of about 50 or 60 and that's pretty I good remember being very grateful to my grandmother who, who bought two subscriptions for reasons that I, I still don't really know <laughs> and did, did he make a profit we never made a profit and my mother really became an essential component of getting this sort of monthly crisis completed okay and out <laughs> and we sort of gave up when we came to New Zealand except for a few special event mm, editions. Mm. But, yeah, so I was brought up um, to, to think about business. Mm, mm. When I joined the DFC, he sent me the advertisement. Yeah. And uh, an envelope arrived with his writing on it. Yeah. And, and all it had inside was the advertisement for a trainee analyst oh, okay. uh, by the DFC yeah. and... and Christchurch and like the obedience son I was, <laughs> um, I applied and, and that's how I started my business career. Yeah. And was that because you were already into hockey by then, were you? Well, hockey was big from, yeah. started in Holland. And mm, um, right. I think I retired from hockey when I was 27 mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and yeah, so, so hockey was a big part of my, mm, mm. I, I wasn't very academic and mm. uh, the DFC they taught me to be an analyst. Yeah, okay. And uh, an analyst listens to the stories of companies that wanted to borrow money from the DFC um, and and examines the data in support of their application. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the story and the data aren't complementary. Mm. And so that then becomes an area for further investigation, so you so, ask a lot more questions. So could you give us a bit of background on what the DFC was and, uh, it and was an what industrial, it did? government-owned industrial development bank. Mm. It had the most marvellous people working in there when I arrived. The general manager was John Hunn. Um, I think of people like John Holdsworth and Keith Sutton and Andrew Strange. And so mm. there was a lot of learning to be had from these relatively mm. young people. Yeah. Um, and the idea was to support businesses that... Bus- businesses that were undertaking new projects, yeah, to okay. mainly in the further processing of our New Zealand raw material, which mm. is mainly rain-related, actually, mm. and... Um, and um, yeah, growing trees, fisheries, farming, of course, dairy and wool and, 
and so on, the further processing thereof within New Zealand was the encouragement thereof and the funding thereof was mm. the job of DFC. Right. And so as an analyst, you went to investigate these applications because there were suspensory loans to be had as well, which didn't have to be repaid if the mm-hmm. conditions were fulfilled. And the conditions related to things like regional development or export mm-hmm. potential or new mm. technology or, yeah, so people came to us to get those suspensory loans. Yeah. Um, but then we also provided them with medium-term finance that the banks wouldn't necessarily be interested in providing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So many of these private companies that undertook, you know, significant new projects weren't all that successful because new projects are quite difficult, even if the idea, the logic is sound, yeah. then the implementation isn't easy. Yeah. And And so when... They struggled in those initial years. Um, we referred to them as problem accounts and I became a problem account specialist mm. in the DFC, which led me to having to deal with people that knew far more than I did and mm. who were far more important than I was. Uh, people uh, running these companies that yeah, were yeah. And trying to do something new but not succeeding yet. Yeah, and, and when things aren't succeeding yet, bank the traditional banks were worried about um, getting their money back and mm. shareholders were worried about what was happening to their investments mm. and the DFC would provide more money mm. into those difficult situations, usually uh, under certain conditions and we were probably the only source of new money. Yes, yeah, so I was way out of my league in terms yeah. of experience. But it sounds like a challenge on the par with um, winning a gold medal as a small it, country. It, it turned out that the gold medal was quite helpful. Oh, did it? Yeah, because um, you didn't really have to talk about it. Yeah. Eventually people found out, and if that was, say, six months after we'd got together, yeah, then you got, you know, people said... Wow, he never mentioned that. You know, you got, you got <laughs> you sort got of bonus points for that as well. Yeah, so, so <laughs> they, they you, will know that you you were used to winning. You 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 learned to be modest, mm-hmm. even if you weren't. And um, yeah, so how to best help these companies is really where I did my training. And what did he learn then? What? How did you help them? Well, to the, the only people that were going to solve the problems were the existing management and staff that were that were there, mm. and and so what we tried to do is to give them the space mm. and the time to to solve the to find solutions. We didn't provide the solutions; we wouldn't have had the ability to do to do that. But we could give people time and space. Yeah. Okay. And and um, quite often. The initial time and space came from encouraging them to be a bit more modest in their ambitions, Uh. perhaps a little smaller, Mm. until they were able to give their customers a a good deal, which is the ambition of all businesses. Did that look like cutting costs? Well, yes, overheads, of course. Um, We didn't encourage consultants because... 
people implement their own ideas much more successfully than other people's ideas. Yeah, that makes sense. And consultants don't implement their advice. Uh-huh. So, so obviously, if there were areas of knowledge that weren't within the business, mm-hmm. then yes, you, you, you could go to expert mm. consultant help on those issues, but the control of doing that had to lie with the management and staff mm, of mm. the company that you're actually working with. Mm. So you've, you, the recovery period is an enormously exciting period in the life cycle of many companies mm. when the recovery is taking place. It creates an enormous amount of pride and uh, it's hard work, um, mm. but it's but you f- find yourself a part of very close relationships. Mm. Really, if you think of a company as a community of people trying to achieve something, mm. then then the the recovery phase produces trust and respect and nothing but exciting things. Mm. And you form the best relationships in that process yeah. of, of recovery. So I fell in, fell in love with that. I've heard you say that um, to get the companies to succeed, they had to become smaller and also fairer. Well, well, su- su- success tends to tends to breed good values. Oh, of, that's often, yeah. Mm. So, so, and especially when you've hit your back against the wall a bit. What, so, what do you mean? Success breeds good values. Well, it's much more easier to be generous when you're winning. Okay. And, and uh, yeah. losing is quite hard. Fear of failure, of course, is a big thing in mm. life. I, I think I'm a product of it. When you start to have the confidence to think that you're doing okay, yeah, it's quite a boost. Yeah. And if you do that as a group of people, then it's yeah. a boost for that group of people. Mm. And that's why the mm. relationships are mm. so intense. Mm. The recovery phase is often quite a long phase, mm. you know, it could easily be two or three or four years. Mm-hmm. And and you get these very close relationships and good relationships and pride do tend to create good mm. values. Mm. Um, it's, it, it sort of sounds like you're going into a crucible together and everyone has to pull together just to... Yeah, and it's so difficult to predict the future. You don't mm. know whether you're going to be successful, mm. you know, mm. it's scary and... And what so, sort of rate of success did you have? I think surprisingly high, really. Obviously, there were failures too. But even when a company did not become successful, everybody would agree that it wasn't for a lack of trying. And I think that if you're going to fail, but you don't blame yourself for a lack of trying, mm, then it's, it's somehow a little bit easier to yeah. accept. Yeah, Okay. Yeah, and and so then you went on to start a company doing a similar kind of work? Yeah, so so when I finally left the UFC after nearly 10 years, I went into an investment company with my former boss and we bought into, like, when things aren't going well, the stakeholders often argue... Okay. Yeah. And the stakeholders in any typical business are the shareholders and and the directors that they appoint, the management and Mm. the staff, but also the suppliers and Mm. and like I said before, the customers are big stakeholders. And when 
when things get difficult, they tend to become increasingly inward-looking mm. and being concerned about their own best interest. Right. When really good things happen when everybody is on the same um Right. On the same, oh, pa- so on that the same was, page. Was that what you had to try and get everyone on the same page so yeah, that things yeah, could... Yeah, and often, you see, if a company fails, mm. the normal process is that a re- the banks will appoint a receiver who is mm-hmm. only responsible for getting the bank their money back mm-hmm. and bugger everybody else. <laughs> and that's okay. their job. Yeah. So not necessarily being critical of that, but... Um, and the banks do have to look after their money because their money belongs to us mm. and we mm. didn't give it to them to lose. So they have to be a bit conservative. But a pre-receivership workout where you say to all the parties involved, if we let this fail, yeah. that's going to be very disadvantageous for everyone. Mm. And it's expensive. But if you all contribute a little bit, mm. that's the negotiation of the pre receivership workout, okay. that, uh, if you all contribute a little bit, mm. then maybe we'll have the time and space to make this work, mm. not by asking other people how to go about it, but by asking the management and staff of the company that we've got. And if you can negotiate everybody chipping in mm. a bit and give the company what you might call a second chance and then get into this recovery phase, yeah. you know, that is... That is really very, very exciting. And a lot of value is created. Mm, or mm. if not a lot of value being created, a, a lot of loss has been avoided. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so everybody can can be better off than just giving up. Mm. Well, I feel like the analogies with our situation in the planet now, they strike me that we're... I mean, it, wouldn't it be good if we could go into that kind of recovery phase yeah, so at one stage, um, of course, what you do try and do in that recovery phase is to reduce overheads and to eliminate the extras and to get back to basics and to become more dependent on what I call the real people in the business. Mm-hmm. So so, so how to do that on a global basis, I'm not sure quite mm. how, to mm. do, how one would do that. I, mm. I don't have answers to solving those big problems. Mm. Um, but I do know that New Zealand is a small country. We've got a lot of small business, and, mm. and that's the we've got a small market to service. Mm. And and really, there are a lot of good companies in New Zealand mm. that achieve exactly that. And, mm. and I find good companies to be generally more generous than companies that have their back against the wall. Yeah. So um, yeah, this is interesting because. I think sometimes, uh, especially maybe in the environmental movement, um, people can think of business as bad, you know, big business. And sometimes I find that I've kind of turned away from money and business as not the answer because it seems associated with capitalism and the things that are causing harm. So I really like how you're pulling out what's good about business and what a good business is. Yeah, so there are a lot of good businesses in New Zealand and some of them are quite profitable, even though they have genuine competition. Monopolies, of course, can be quite unfair because Mm. they don't uh, have enough competition to Mm. keep them honest. And Mm. um, Yeah, but we do have very, very many 
good businesses in New Zealand are problems here, not so much when these people go overseas because they tend to be very effective um, overseas. They're quite hands-on as a general rule. And and um, a problem is when we take our money overseas. Okay, That's yeah. That's when traditionally we've tended to take a bath because it's not easy to operate in a different culture where the rules mm. aren't the same as what you used to. And mm. Yeah, we've had a very poor record at taking our money overseas oh. and I'm a great enthusiast for investing your money in New Zealand. Yeah, okay. Um, mm. um, yeah, to be f- smaller and fair mm. uh, is to be genuinely concerned about your impact on the environment and mm. to be genuinely concerned about the well-being of your staff. Yeah. And um, and and all these all, all these positive things that people talk about. Mm, mm. But, of course, there are also quite a few bad businesses. Mm, yeah. And in a bad business, individual stakeholders become more self-centred in their approach mm, to it, and mm. that usually causes further problems. Mm, mm. Could, do you think we could sort of segue a little bit to talk about how you got interested in the climate crisis? And I think you talked about your meeting with Susan as being a bit of a eureka moment? Well, um, I don't know. It, it, it's, to get involved in a new problem account, mm-hmm. you need, takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. So mm. as, you, as you, and it's usually at least a three or four or five year process before you become redundant to it. Mm. So there came a time when I was old enough not to have that five-year period available to me, so I continued to work with the companies I was still then involved with, but yeah. I didn't do anything new. And the you moment scaled you scaled up your problem account to the whole planet. Well, in the end, you became redundant to problem accounts through the, the, their success. So, so, but once I stopped getting involved with new companies, mm. I had more time to think about other things. Mm. I called that retirement. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, and then um, this thing about being an analyst and listening to stories and examining data mm. and finding where they didn't agree, Susan came through very, very powerfully on that because her ex, and not only that, she's funny as well, and <laughs> and so she's a delight to listen to. And, mm. um, yeah, she, energy and the creation, the generation of all different forms of energy um, was really her mm. her life's expertise. And, mm. and she explained to me and, and to many others that we needed to burn a lot of fossil fuels to build the replacement renewable energies. Right. So we have to use more fossil fuels to find a way of replacing fossil fuels. It's not an argument against alternative sources of energy. Yeah. It's just that... That we need fossil fuels we in have order to, understand to set, that, set them up. Yeah, you can yeah. certainly start that ball rolling, yeah. but you can't complete the replacement of fossil fuels mm. without fossil fuels mm. and the ambitions that people had in that respect were unachievable mm. and she called them wicked problems. Wicked and, problems, uh, yeah, yeah. and she found, she found a, a whole methodology to deal with wicked problems mm. and 
and I found her fascinating. Mm. And yes, it gave me a much greater interest mm. in, in, in this whole area of, of global warming. And I started reading that all the data, all the wisdom as to how to deal with it has already been out there for a long time. There's a starting point that I use is to study this computer model in the early 70s, 1972, I think it was, called Limits to Growth. And it predicted very much to, to the kind of economic conditions that mm. we are currently experiencing. Yeah, right. And, and since then, so many people have added their tuppence to it. So you mustn't think that in any way I'm, I'm talking about anything that kind of I have discovered. No, or we, or but you're, you're being an, an analyst. Yeah, all you have to do yeah. is, 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 is listen to all these more knowledgeable people mm, and, mm. and the wisdom that is already out there and the inability, really, of um, especially the wealthier um, mm. societies to, to, to respond positively to, to this whole problem of emissions and mm. global warming mm. uh, and that's quite scary uh, because um, yeah uh, the price is going to be paid by future generations mm. well uh, yeah because I'm interested in this you've talked about the data and what that shows and then you talked before about the story and the data not matching up because we've got this story that I guess um, that we can keep on growing, and our our governments are still measuring um, success by GDP or sort of. So yeah, does it, if fossil fuels come into it, doesn't it? And 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 economic growth and the way it's measured comes into it. A lot of things come into it. The the thing about fossil fuels is that we only really discovered how to start using them by, but. 200, 250 years ago, I think, steam engine, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, so, so uh, it's created so much prosperity and attached to a technology. The technology has so raised living standards around the world that everyone just kind of hopes that it can keep on doing mm. this forever. Mm. But it's run into some problems <laughs> And, and um, one of the problems is that uh, most of the easy-to-get fossil fuels have been got. Mm. <laughs> and while they have allowed, say, for example, the world population to go from less than 1 billion people to now 8 billion people forecast to go to 10 billion people, which is all about growth, isn't it? And, mm. And, mm. But it's also an overshoot, and we don't really... We can't depend on fossil fuels to keep doing it, even if it wasn't for climate change. The, uh, uh, the cost of extracting fossil fuels is going up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I so remember. the future is not going to be so favoured by fossil mm, fuels as mm. the past has been. Mm. I like the analogy that Susan gave of um, growing peas and um, that you need a few peas to plant so that you can grow more peas. And the more peas that you need to plant, the the less you can eat. <laughs> yeah. And it's a bit the same with energy. Like we need energy to dig energy out of the ground or to get it from the sun or whatever. Yeah. And the, 
that cost is getting bigger and bigger so that you actually get less energy left over. Before um, uh, fossil fuels, most of that energy was provided either by human beings or animals a lot by animals mm, but you had mm. to feed them and and slaves you know were quite a big part of most societies yeah so using other people's labor even though you had to feed them um was sort of a perfectly normal part of 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 the societies around the world so so mm. fossil fuels sort of solved those problems mm. and and um yeah, the progress that has been made and the prosperity that has been created is enormous. But one of the people I follow is a chap called Tim Morgan and he's got a yeah, surplus energy economic sort of podcast and, and various other ways of communicating. You can all Google him and turn... And he's a pessimist. He, 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 he's a what, sorry? A pessimist. Oh, a pessimist. He, yeah, he thinks the world's going to fail. Mm. And, and so that... That would be um, very disappointing, wouldn't it? He mm. says the, he, the reason he says it's going to fail is because he looks at it through an energy lens. Mm-hmm. Most people look through a monetary lens and mm. they say the financial system has the ability to allow us to keep growing because we can print money. Mm. But, he's, but Tim Morgan says we haven't got the sources of energy to support it. Because to, to make anything or to do anything, you need energy. Yeah. So mm. energy, even in our own human lives, Lou, energy is big. And when you get older, you lose it. <laughs> <laughs> so so you haven't, you've maybe gained a little bit in, in wisdom and experience, but mm. but without energy, you, 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 you're a bit useless, you know. <laughs> and, and so uh, I don't think we can look to old people to solve our problems. Um, mm. We need young people to solve our problems. Well, I guess if, if we're talking about all of us being a team, we probably need everyone. I think maybe you can tolerate one or two <laughs> old people, but not too many. And you mustn't give them a lot of power. You know, they, they, mm. they, old people do not do well with power as an observation that that um, is kind of inescapable when, when you look around. Mm. Um, so um, I'm interested in how looking at the analogy between dealing with the problem accounts and looking at the situation we're in where you say we need to use less energy and um, I think you've talked before about the degrowth movement and needing to scale things down. What, what analogies do you see and what can we learn from well, problem if, accounts? If you can make um, the world economy, renewable energy is obviously very important. But one of the ways, the best way to really to solve the problems we're facing is, A, to use less energy. Mm even more important than replacing um, fossils with renewables. And the other thing that we must do is produce less waste. I think probably nearly everybody agrees with those two sort of general comments, but how to do it, that is the the great difficulty. Mm. So so, um, a lot of people hope that technology will provide solutions, but technology has tended to raise living standards, certainly, but it 
it has increased the use of energy. When you think of airplanes and motor cars and all the devices mm. that we've now got in mm. the modern affluent home that uh, that free up free us up from doing the hard labour. Yeah. Sort of, especially women, of course, and, and the, who, who used to do most of that hard sort of slog. Mm. And, and yeah, so tapping into female energy is probably a very smart thing to do. Tapping into it? Tapping into that energy that's been liberated by, you know, not spending all your time doing the laundry and, and changing, <laughs> oh, you, and changing you mean, nappies. You mean we that women have a lot to offer? I think so. Okay. I do. I do. Yeah. They've been given the time to offer more. Yeah. And, and um, yeah. So because you were saying before the things that made the those companies be able to succeed were um, te- teamwork and... Yeah, what... I don't can't remember now that I've already said this, so maybe you can edit it out. But but a company is a community of people. Yeah. And and um, yeah, if they help each other, mm. and um, th- then they tend to do better than when they're competing. Mm. So so this competitive nature mm. <laughs> that we grow up with mm. is not really conducive to producing strong supportive communities, mm, you know. Mm. But, uh, yeah, so maybe that's another gender issue. But, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, you, you need a lot of sort of common goods mm. to, to be s- successful, I if think. We need someone to come along to the planet and give us time and space to figure out what the issue is, and I think that would be helpful. <laughs> yeah. But we, but we know, as I said, what the issue is. We just mm. don't quite know how to get there. Yeah, yeah. And, and I hope the high energy using society is primarily responsible mm. for global warming. It's as the third world countries are becoming slightly more enriched, they're they're taking quite a lot of the blame of the additional emissions. But this is nonsense. You know, it wasn't very long ago when, when um, it's Europe and the United States who had a major um, uh, high energy. New Zealand too. We, mm. We're high energy per capita users, mm. and and we should take a lot of the responsibility. Mm. And the poorer countries are much lower energy users, and and um, yeah, extracting colonisation was all about extracting value from. Distant countries, yeah, you know? yeah, and 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 it's now time to to reverse that and say, yeah. put your hand up. If you're a high energy user, mm. then put your hand up and start paying. Mm. It makes a lot of people, of course, the poor always finish up paying more than the rich. So so a lot of people will be unhappy about that, and we yeah. see that unhappiness already in in quite a. Many, many of the of, of the high energy using society. Yeah, well, that's countries. where the what you, what you talked about it needs to be fairer. It, yeah, like um, and yes. I think you've talked about um, so, social justice. Yeah, um, human rights, equality is not going to be so easy to 
implement if we become poorer. Mm. And if we if our economies become smaller, we will collectively become poorer. There'll still be a lot of wealthy people, of course, but th those wealthy people will be less respected by the people who haven't got those advantages. And, mm. and, and the wealthy people will still be high energy users. So, um, yeah, it's time for them to start paying up. Mm. Mm. Do you have any hope? Because that sounds a little bleak. It, it's it's um, uh, either we let it uh, descend into chaos, mm. which is failure, mm. and failure is definitely a possibility. Mm. Failure of the human race is definitely a possibility. But the aim, of course, and the hope is to avoid it. Mm. <laughs> and, and I think to avoid it, we have to manage the process. Mm. And it's ludicrous for our politicians and and our economists to to call for growth and something that has already overshot itself. Mm. So managed descent into becoming smaller mm. is and please let's stop talking about growth. Even in a degrowth environment, good companies will still grow. Yeah, what because that I mean just how how do companies be successful in this Usually because they've environment. Got, either because they've got good technology or because mainly, I believe, they've got good people. Mm. And so, yeah, we should encourage, in the same way that we encourage and spend a lot of time watching good sports teams, you know, we should applaud um, good companies. And what we should do is try and elim eliminate the spoilers out there. You know, yeah, um, and try and reduce their impact and become more efficient. So you're sort of saying that we can get more out of less. We can that the, that it's all in the people and and a little bit the technology. But imagine that we that that we became smaller at the rate of two or three percent per annum. Amongst that two or three percent, there'll be lots of growth. And even more degrowth. <laughs> but there'll still be lots of good things happening. And we should always encourage good things happening. Mm. And a community of people who achieve a lot should not be uh, tainted by, by the fact that there's also quite a few bad companies out there. Mm. Let's uh, try and eliminate the bad <laughs> mm. and, and support the good. Mm. And that might sound a little bit general, General and and I don't know either how to do it. We've got to get <laughs> we've, we've got to get together on it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But but degrowth does not spell the end of individual communities being successful. Yeah, well that's that's good. <laughs> and that's where your hope has to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And really, the wealthy have become so wealthy, haven't they? They've that it's revolting to it. It's very, to very, pretty much everyone. Yeah, just incredibly uneven. Yeah, is that the my is that the Roman Empire going down to Gurgle, Gurgler? Mm. Uh, who knows, you know? But mm. yeah, I, I would. I'm a great fan for getting the wealthy to mm. sh to share their good fortune. Mm. You talked once about well, you've. 
You've talked about Max Harris and the work that he does and Action Station. I think that we have to be very tolerant in this process of the inevitable degrowth. So all the people that can make us more tolerant um, mm. um, and Max makes a huge contribution to trying to create a more tolerant society. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so, and um, I don't know if you answered this, but what does give you hope? Um, I don't think that um, um, old people should hold power. Mm. And what gives me hope is that most old people are coming to the end of their life, <laughs> okay. especially old men who have <laughs> managed to retain so much power. Mm. So we've got to find a way of handing that power to younger people. Mm. And then what gives you hope is that those younger people will see what is happening, as I think they are, um, and will find solutions that we haven't been able to mm. to think of ourselves. Mm. Um, yeah, that process of transferring power to younger people, mm. I think it's very important. Mm. Mm. And do you have a, a vision? Um, well, that is sort of my vision, isn't it? So, mm. so in terms of a personal vision, yeah. I'd like to think that I'd contributed a little bit to that process. Yeah, so mm. I, I fear that younger generations are not going to be as well off, but maybe we'll find new and happier lives without so much consumption. Mm. Because this idea of uh, getting rid of the excess, and we've, we've talked about this explosion of like carbon energy and how we've been able to basically create the modern economy and our lifestyles where we have all these gadgets and technology. But um, if I got the impression when you talked about the problem accounts that they, they had to shed the extra stuff. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it gets... I think we definitely have to consume less. Like. Yeah, but it, and that's not necessarily bad news. No, that's, that's, is there evidence that overconsumption is making us happier? <laughs> it makes it's, us quite it's, full. <laughs> no, it's communities that make us happier. In New Zealand, we're lucky because, mm. because if we can get that kind of cooperations whether it be at individual company level or whether mm. it be in, in, in a part of our, our society or mm. wherever, wherever we get people to work together, mm. I think, successfully, we will see um, more happiness. Yeah, because you were saying we're a small country, which possibly makes it more possible that we could get together and cooperate. A lot of good ideas can be tested mm. in a small country like New Zealand mm. without having to make huge major changes. And a lot of companies do that. You know, they, they have a new product or, or, and say, let's test them. And, 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 oh, okay. And, yeah, yeah. And, and we encourage that mm. Mm. in New Zealand. Mm. Yeah, you, if it's turned out to be not a very good idea, <laughs> it's better to um, not invest in it on a large scale, you know. Yeah, yeah. Implementation is so important, you mm. know. Good ideas badly implemented 
cost a lot of money. Mm. You try and avoid them. Mm. And, and whilst good ideas are so important to making progress, the implementation, I think, is even the bigger requirement mm-hmm. and, and most implementation is still handled by people. Mm. That seems to be a key message that it's all about the people. Yeah. Um, so do you think New Zealand could make a contribution to the world if we take this As a track? sort of a role model, do you think? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Well, what do we you have think? quite a lot of renewable energy, so th- mm. that's, a, that's, that's a good thing. Mm. Um, if we go back to our development sort of ambitions that, that we started off with in the DFC, you would say you take Manapuri, for example, you know, that produces a lot of energy, but it's not that easy to bring that energy to where the people live in the North Island. The whole of Southland should be a development. The deal that we that we do with the aluminium companies, I forget the name of it now, but okay. um, we should make that cheap electricity available to people in Southland. Mm. It will bring business to Southland. It, mm. will, it will, for example, electric cars are obviously good in mm. the sense that while it takes a lot of fossil fuels to build them, there's still, you know, a much better way. All of Southland should have electric cars and we should implement the the support structures to to, to make that possible. And all houses in Southland should be warm. <laughs> so you're saying that we should we sh- um, collectively, we sh- like as the government, should support... Of course we should sell that to overseas interests. You know. I see. We yeah. can use it so well in ourselves. Mm. But you lose it, quite a lot of that power is lost in transmitting it north. So mm. why, don't you, why don't we use it... Look, I'm not an expert on the area <laughs> and yeah. I was promising you that I wasn't g- going to pretend that I had solutions, but <laughs> yeah. it is offensive that we can't use all that electricity for our, our own people. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, and that it's the kind of way to, to change isn't easy. People don't like change. Mm-hmm. The older they are, the less they like it. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, young people are more open to change. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah. I'm kind of relying a lot on the next generations. Mm, yeah, mm. I, I don't worry about myself anymore. I've already had enough good fortune. <laughs> yeah. But I do worry about my grandchildren and mm. their grandchildren. Yeah. Something you said that I liked was about pride and how... Success breeds be- pride. Yeah. And pride breeds good cultures. Mm. Yeah, and fairness mm. and generosity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, my last question is if you imagine that you're 85 years old and you're sitting on your deck with a Heineken, yeah, maybe. Definitely. <laughs> um, looking back at your life, what do you feel most proud of? Well, if I was conceited enough to think that I'd made a little bit of a difference in this process that we're talking about, especially the handing of power to, to, to younger people and, and given younger people more experience than they would have had if, if, 
if I hadn't been there, that would be the thing I was most proud of. Giving power to young people. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Lou. The show is also available as a podcast at thegoodenergyproject.substack.com.